0: Even as vaccination rates in the U.S. rise and COVID case numbers and death rates continue to drop, concerns about vaccine efficacy, access, and equity persist, especially among Black Americans.
1: There was no variation from a vaccine efficacy perspective. The vaccine held strong in all of those different areas, whether it was a comorbid medical condition, or whether it was a race or ethnicity condition or situation, or whether it was based on male, female sex, in all cases, the vaccine efficacy held up.
0: That's Dr. Meg Frazier, Senior Medical Director of Vaccines at Pfizer. On this episode of Moving Medicine, host Mia Keyes, AMA Health Equity Policy Director, is joined by Dr. Frazier and Michael Crawford, Associate Dean for Strategy, Outreach, and Innovation at Howard University College of Medicine, in this discussion on COVID-19 vaccines among Black Americans. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. Here's Mia Keyes.
2: So without further ado, we are going to go ahead and get into our conversation. I want to open it up with um, just just some some comments that each of you have um, for us today with respect to
1: our uh, conversation topic. I'll start with you, Meg. Thank you so much for allowing me to be present. I think one of the things that I'm hoping that we're able to convey today is information that will be helpful from a vaccine confidence perspective not only really as it applies to COVID, but for really all vaccinations. I think the other thing that I'd like to touch on is the concept of diversity in clinical trials and it being a matter of equity. And Pfizer has recognized for some time the need to improve equity Equity percentages within our clinical trials. And that is something that we've been working very hard on. We know that historically, some groups have been very underrepresented and we have been working very hard to do so, including in our COVID trials.
2: Really excited for you to be here. And I just wanna lay out because we are gonna be using some words that um, we, we likely all use in our daily conversation, but I wanna make sure that we're on, uh, for our audience members on the same page. When we talk about the concept of equity, Right it's very different from the concept of equality right, the concept of equality is literally the philosophy everyone receives the same thing right, whereas equity is if each according to their need, right? So when we're talking about equality, it's literally one-to-one, everyone gets the same thing, no consideration for needs or differences in that way. But when we're talking about equity, we are talking about recognizing that certain groups require certain needs. And for the sake of everyone's help, it's incumbent upon us to recognize what, what those resources are and to, and to make sure that they're provided according to need. So Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk to us today about?
3: And I hope today that we that I will be able to bring a, a perspective uh, from a hospital provider, uh, an ambulatory provider, and then an academic provider. So at Howard University, we obviously have a medical school uh, and other medical science institutions, a school of pharmacy, a school of nursing and allied health, a school of dentistry. Uh, we also have an ambulatory practice that supports the broader District of Columbia metropolitan area and then we also have a hospital. Uh, Like most of the folks uh, that are hospital providers, we've been at this COVID fight since past February. Uh, We've all had to pivot and adjust to this new reality. Uh, So we have a fundamental understanding of the shifts of trying to ensure that you cultivate an environment that is safe uh, and safe and healthy for your workforce and your staff, uh, especially and as well as especially your patients. Uh, so we we had to do some of those things uh, previously, uh, February of last year, and then we also uh, had a, had an opportunity to establish some community-oriented testing sites. Uh, that provided us with some key insights that help inform how we establish our COVID-19 vaccine clinic, uh, which we established uh, this past January uh, and have been operating from 8.30 to 3.30 p.m. And to date, we've vaccinated over 30,000 individuals uh, in the area. So I hope to bring some some best practices around how to engage um, communities, uh, look at how we partner uh, with traditional and non-traditional partnerships. And then thinking about how we leverage uh, collective uh, insight and buy-in to be able to encourage folks to receive vaccines and and promote a safe and and healthy environment for your workforce as well as your staff.
2: And so very timely as well. We really appreciate having the 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 you know clinical setting perspective here, especially as we're talking about research and academia. And we're also talking about what, what Alethea is going to bring to us. Alethea, tell us a bit about what it is that you, you plan on highlighting for us today.
4: Sure, Mia, and thanks so much for really laying the groundwork on talking about the difference between equality and equity. And you really lift up something that's very important, and it speaks to the work that we've been doing in this space. And so Walgreens has been really at the forefront of combating COVID-19. We stood up one of the first non-governmental COVID-19 testing sites last March at the height of the pandemic. And much, much of our work has been around Um, especially focusing on medically underserved communities, Black and Hispanic communities that have been hit hardest by the virus and are at greatest risk of hospitalization and death. And so as we expanded into administering the COVID vaccine to the public, we were determined to really have equity at the core of our work from a public health perspective um, in order to make sure we were targeting those populations that were hardest hit. And so as a company, we stood up a COVID vaccine equity task force, which I chair and the goal of the task force is really to build upon our equity work, what we learned from testing in areas that were very vulnerable to create a strategy identify tactics to help drive the equitable um, distribution and administration of the vaccine. And so we've been operating under three pillars, which I'm interested in talking about today, education and information. So really working with trusted community partners to lend our voice, to speak to vaccine hesitancy um, and education around the efficacy of the vaccine. The second pillar has been removing barriers to care because what we know is that even when there's care available, there are often barriers that prevent people from accessing it. And so we have partnered to help remove the transportation barrier because that's one barrier. And so with our partnership with Uber, we've done that and are looking to work with other businesses to help remove some of those. And then access, ensuring that the vaccine is available in the hardest hit communities. And so we've made a commitment to one, make sure a vaccine is available in our locations that are in medically underserved Black and Hispanic communities. But additionally, taking the vaccine further into community through some hyper localized clinics that we've been doing with trusted trusted community voices, including churches, civic organizations, Mason's Lodges, community centers. So really looking forward to talking about one, the intentionality around addressing equity in the vaccine because you do have to be very intentional about it. And then just sharing some of the tools and tactics as I heard from Dean Howard, and I'm sure I'm gonna hear from Dr. Frazier, we're probably all utilizing some of those same tools. So looking forward to digging into that conversation.
2: Me too. I mean, between the three of you, I think I think you have so much to offer and I'm grateful for your presence today. I want to start with you, Meg. And, and, you know, one of the things that came up in our conversation earlier this year, and it comes up in other conversations that I've either also moderated or I've I've been sitting in on and, and listening to. And it's this idea that, you know, the vaccine was developed so quickly. Right. The rapid pace at which it was developed for a lot of people causes their ears to perk up and it, it puts them on edge, you know, how can you help us to really understand um, the speed at which the vaccine was developed and, and what does that mean in terms of addressing uh, concerns with respect to vaccine hesitancy?
1: And I think that's an excellent question and, and let me start with the groundwork for the current clinical trial programs. The idea about the pandemic and pandemic preparedness actually began back in 2002 or so with the first SARS-CoV-1 pandemic. Luckily, the SARS-CoV-1 virus died out to some degree, but that wasn't true this time around. But back in 2002, the Bush administration put together a pandemic preparedness task force, which has been working ever since, recognizing that that was not going to be the last pandemic we were going to see, nor is the one that we're currently experiencing likely to be the last one we're ever going to see. So therefore, we had in place some decision-making about how clinical trials should look. And in addition, we've had an opportunity to study coronaviruses through the MERS, so the Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus, which is still present although it's relatively localized in the Middle East and hasn't made an impact in the United States is still going on and there has been there have been many issues going on with with looking at vaccine development for that and then if you also think about some of the other pandemics that we have experienced that have not really impacted the United States but have impacted other areas of the world We know that there has been some backbone. So, if you take a look at the traditional paradigm for research for vaccines, which typically takes 10 to 15 years, the mumps vaccine probably being the most rapid before now, which took about four years for development, it has been fast. And that is because each phase is done sequentially. So, there is a preclinical phase, and then there are phases one, two, and three. If you take a look at the paradigm for us today, for COVID-19, you'll find that that preclinical period is the same as it was for the traditional paradigm because we've been doing a lot of research with coronaviruses for a number of years. And the messenger, excuse me, the messenger RNA vaccine platform has been looked at for two decades for other things, primarily oncology, but nonetheless, it's not new to the present. But phases one through three were all done Instead of doing sequentially, they were all done concurrently. And why don't we typically do that? We don't typically do that because the probability of success for a vaccine out of phase one to the point where it's launched is somewhere less than 30 percent. So it would be unusual for a pharmaceutical company to put all their resources up front to develop a vaccine For phases one through three altogether if they didn't have a very high probability of success. However, a pandemic is very different. So no corners were cut. Phases one, two, and three were all done. They were just done nearly simultaneously. And when you think about the fact that we had the genome for SARS-CoV-2 roughly at the end of January, when the Chinese released the genome to the world, the first shots for Pfizer and BioNTech were in early April. So phase one in humans began in early April, that is unprecedented. And then the phase three st- st- trials started in July 27th, that's remarkable as well. But if you think about the traditional paradigm where you might have 30 to 60,000 subjects within a study program, we had 45,000 subjects within a study program in a very short period of time. So we also did not cut corners in terms of the numbers of subjects that were enrolled in the study. And what I always tell people is it would never do either the government, health and human services, it wouldn't do the company, it wouldn't do the scientists, it wouldn't do the academicians, all the people that are involved in this work. It wouldn't do us any good to release a vaccine that wasn't proven to be safe or efficacious because it would further damage our reputation going forward and potentially the reputation for all the medications that we have already provided. The other thing is that the FDA requested 60 days' worth of safety information, which was what came through in mid-November last year. They needed 60 days' worth of safety information, which is the time period in which you're likely to see a serious adverse event related to a vaccine. So that 60 days of safety information is very important and should hopefully confer a degree of confidence in the vaccines and where we are today. Not only knowing that there were 45,000 subjects which fits squarely in that 30 to 60,000 traditional subject paradigm. That should help I think, but also to know that no corners were cut in any of the research program to date for COVID-19. And also the uh, trials are continuing. I think it's been in the public domain that we have just released our 12 to 15 year old adolescent data. We started a trial looking at six month to 11 year olds. And we also started a specific trial looking at pregnancy. So these trials will continue even now during an emergency use authorization. I mean,
2: you, you laid it out plainly uh, for there, Meg the fact that number one, you know, the, the mRNA research is not new, right? It's it's several decades old. We've been able to learn from, uh, from, from uh, coronaviruses that have preceded us, right? We've been, because of emergency protocols, concurrent uh, phase one through three trials have been going on. You've been able to have really very robust clinical trials which are ongoing. And you're going to talk to us later on about representative, uh representativeness with with that, I imagine. And so it's it's really just a matter of people understanding the logistics of of vaccine development and and also you know kind of framing that with with history and and just having very open conversations about that, which I think <clears throat> the work of, uh, of of Walgreens, particularly through its task force, Alethea, I think you can speak to this. Um, so very well, you know, in terms of addressing those barriers, you know, either questions that people have or um, historical related um, concerns that folk might glean, you know, what's Walgreens doing to address ongoing hesitancy, right? And, and we're calling it hesitancy, but but there's also an element of just overall um, distrust in institutions. That's also an, another important way to frame it. Um, and and then what are some best practices that Walgreens has um, has has uh, developed or or observed that work with bringing people along to a space where they can trust the science that Meg has just described?
4: Sure. So you you really hit on a good point, which is those open conversations. I think if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that. Um, is that COVID vaccine hesitancy is not just one thing, it's many things. And this is because personal health um, and how patients overcome hesitancy needs to really be addressed by their personal experiences and situations. And so we have taken a multifaceted approach that includes one, our pharmacist. And so utilizing our skilled workforce um, who are familiar faces and trusted health resources embedded in communities, and approximately 45% of our pharmacists identify as non-white often reflecting the communities that they serve and they're highly accessible and so using them to one have those open conversations to be able to provide information um, on the efficacy of the vaccine but also building trust um, because they are trusted within the community and are able to provide some personalized information and then we have also looked at you know, content on our website and social media. So we're producing content daily, even hourly sometimes, to ensure that our customers and patients have the latest information at their fingertips. And so if you go on our website, we're putting out videos and bringing the credible third party experts to contribute to the content, as well as those, again, trusted community voices. So we have had Anita Jenkins, the CEO of Howard University Hospital, on talking to us. We've the Chicago Urban League, Fre- Karen Freeman Wilson, the executive director. And so that people are having a medical conversation because we do it in concert with our chief medical officer or our head of pharmacy operations, but are also having a communal conversation, which is really important and at the heart of this, especially from the historic perspective. And then partnerships, they are so critical, so collaborating with civic organizations, faith-based organizations, people go to their churches for healing, um, you know, spiritually, but quite honestly, during COVID, it's been physical healing as well. We are doing some of our vaccine, best vaccine work um, in partnership with local faith-based organizations. And so really, again, utilizing those trusted uh, voices as well. And then influencers also, we launched a campaign a couple of weeks ago with John Legend, who is also incredibly committed to vaccine um, equity as well. And so working with those voices. So it Quite right, honestly, is a multifaceted approach because what reaches one person may not reach the other, and so putting a lot out there and hoping that that helps to move the needle.
2: On a on a personal note, it certainly for me has helped to move the needle, and I'm someone who works in the healthcare space, right? But it, but it still makes a difference for me to have access to conversations and platforms like this one, and similar to the ones that you all do at Walgreens um, Co. And, and and such like that, um, and and to the point where you know i i did go and get the vaccine and actually may you'd be proud i i mean not that it truly matters but i do have the Pfizer vaccine and then I, I feel fine i i stay hydrated and um you know i certainly do feel um that i made the right decision for myself based on the information that i had available to me and i continue to have conversations right you know but i certainly do recognize that not everyone is in is in that space right and and we continue to see Bases, Michael, where the vaccine rates remain low, um, and or or they're, they're rising. It's just moving, um, moving, you know, uh, uh, at a different deliberate pace. And so I'm wondering, you know, you you coming out of out of the Washington D.C. metro area, being at Howard Hospital, what what efforts has the hospital, you know, innovative efforts has the hospital um, and and the 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 institution taken to increase vaccine access and and to address um, low vaccine rates, whether it be attributed to some of the pillars that Alethea mentioned, education, barriers to care, access. what 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 is uh, Howard gonna work on?
3: I think Alethea highlighted some really critical points. I think the education piece is, is critically important. It's very much like a marketing campaign. You're seeding um, the environment and the conditions to ensure that folks have the information they need to make informed decisions. So we've hosted a number of webinars, town halls, ask the doctor sessions. Uh, we've hosted Dr. Fauci with the Urban League, Blacks Against COVID, to have a discussion with Dr. Fauci in a very plain and informative way to address folks' questions uh, about the vaccines, so and not just one vaccine, but all of the vaccines. And then to discuss some of the disparities and systemic challenges that communities of color have experienced with the healthcare system historically and how that relates to how people are viewing COVID-19 testing as well as vaccines. So we've done a lot of education, uh, pre-education prior to events. We've also continued to educate patients and and work with thought leaders and influencers to vaccinate folks on the ground uh, when they enter a vaccine site or when they're in the hospital or when they're also in an ambulatory environment, our doctors, one-to-one, our nurses, one-to-one are having conversations uh, with patients and not only patients, but the family. And I think that we're really focusing on this family construct because Different elements, different individuals within the family are more influential than others. So, messaging to the family as opposed to individuals, we found some success in that. Uh, and then in partnerships, and, and I'll talk about three specific partnerships that we've undertaken recently. And one was with an elected official uh, in an area within Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is governed within eight wards. Uh, we work with a council member from Ward six. Uh, and this area is in northeast near the D.C. Armory, and at the time, it was one of the lowest, it, the area possessed one of the lowest vaccine rates in the city. So we partnered with a council member and a pastor uh, of a church, uh, Mount Moriah Baptist Church, to establish a mobile vaccine clinic with, embedded within the community. Uh, we leverage the council member staff and their ground game and infrastructure to do a lot of door knocking uh, to arrange transportation and we deployed our clinicians to that site Uh, we created this pre-registration list and an alternative list for those individuals that might show up uh, and we vaccinated folks accordingly so prior to the event we use uh, pastor Dalton who's the pastor of that church council member and, and his staff, as well as some community-based organizations to really educate folks prior to their vaccination date. And we vaccinated those individuals, roughly about 180 individuals. The number seems small, but for that particular zip code, it was a significant amount of people that were vaccinated on that day. Secondly, we partnered with Miss Coral Masters Berry, Uh, in Ward 8, uh, she hosted a mass vaccination event where the objective was to vaccinate a thousand individuals. So we partnered with the CBOs, uh, other hospital providers within the District of Columbia, as well as some of our payer partners to really establish a robust ground game to be able to have people sign up and to be vaccinated. So that that event was was about about being vaccinated, but also hosted a number of wraparound services. Uh, As we all are well aware, there is now chronic unemployment that is occurring. Food insecurity uh, has been amplified. So food was being distributed, social services, uh, services around housing to ensure folks were not only being vaccinated, but some of their other needs were being satisfied as well. And then the, the most recent event, we partnered with the Chinese Community Church uh, to really access to help create access within the Asian and Pacific Islander community. Uh, and that was in the church environment. And we did, we undertook the same approach in terms of this pre-education. Uh, knocking on doors, multiple touches to ensure that folks showed up to minimize that no-show rate and then we vaccinated those individuals accordingly. Uh, So those are just several of the events that we've undertaken within the community uh, to ensure that we are working with those areas that possess low vaccination rates. And then the last one I will just mention is with our payer partners. Uh, We've established kind of like a concierge service for some of their members. And medically underserved communities where they're scheduling folks directly into our scheduling template. And those folks are being incorporated into our daily workflow of our vaccination clinic Monday through Friday. Uh, and we've been able to create some access. They've been able to manage the transportation to minimize that social determinant of health to ensure that folks have the transportation, have the access to be vaccinated accordingly. So I think that those partnerships are are critically important, and thinking uh, beyond your traditional strategies uh, to be able to create environments where folks trust uh, and have read and readily have access uh, to receive their vaccine and education, I think is critically important.
2: I mean, everything that you 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 spoke of there, Michael, really speaks to some of the things that both Megan and Alethea have, have have mentioned already, which is you know creating spaces of trust, and to your point about doing, uh, going beyond traditional um, outreach and literally, that, that is literally the, the the embodiment of innovation, right? And then um, as a Ward 6 uh, resident, I, I very much appreciate the work that you all have, have done, and, but I also must speak to the work that you're doing with the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, especially right now, because we've, um, as, a, as, as a national consciousness is raising around the inequitable distribution of of, of, of care historically for marginalized and minoritized communities. A lot of times we don't pay attention to the Asian communities because of this, um, this creation of the model minority myth, right? But with all this anti-Asian rhetoric, um, just rising up and, and really just choking the life out of, out of our, uh, our, our our neighbors and, and those who, who are of, of Asian um, descent, um, we, we really need to be very mindful um, of of that work, so I appreciate you you um, raising that um, as well. And I want to make sure that we we come back and talk a bit more about some of the intentionality um, that you mentioned, um, Meg. I want to I want to come back to some of the things that you were talking about earlier uh, with respect to representation in the clinical trials um, and um, and throughout all of the phases. I, can you speak to any differences? Differences, if any in um, clinical efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine based on race and ethnicity, and then also based on, on, on other um, really very significant um, status and, and identifiers, uh, chronic health or age, gender, but especially race and
1: ethnicity and, and, and chronic uh, chronic conditions. Thank you, and, and that's an excellent question. So let me let me start by saying in our landmark trial, which would have been the phase three trial, We selected investigative sites that would have been in diverse communities in the United States and globally that were disproportionately affected by COVID-19, and that was to help ensure that individuals and communities that had been most impacted had the opportunity to participate. So that's kind of the backdrop for what I'm going to say. In our phase three study, approximately 42% overall and 30% of US participants came from diverse backgrounds. So I think that's a very significant percentage. In the United States, it was a little bit different, but in the United States, roughly almost 10% were black Americans, 28% were Latinx. We had 38% uh, representation of the obese population and obesity is perhaps one of the most significant risk factors for a bad outcome with COVID-19. And at least between 20 and 25% had another underlying comorbidity. And by that, I mean, heart disease, cancer, perhaps lung disease, those types of chronic illnesses were well represented. When you take a look at the breakdown of vaccine efficacy in all of those are different groups, there was no variation from a vaccine efficacy perspective. The vaccine held strong in all of those different areas, whether it was a comorbid medical condition or what, whether it was a race or ethnicity condition or situation or whether it was based on male, female sex, in all cases, the vaccine efficacy held up. And I think that's very important information.
2: I completely uh, agree with you. Having, having that information um, readily available and being able to say that with confidence uh, certainly does make a, a difference um, for, for families, for individuals, and, and really also in terms of the message, right? Being able to lead with, with that message. And, you know, Alicia, you, you mentioned to us in your opening. Some of the uh, the work that Walgreen has been doing um, around outreach into the community and 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 being able to rely on, on the science and on the facts, you know, similar to what Meg just highlighted for us. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about those uh those off-site vaccine clinics, the outreach that um that has worked and and, and that you all have. Have intentionally crafted into your strategies for outreach, um, and then uh, you know, similar to the question that I asked Meg, amongst communities with high rates of chronic diseases, are you or 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 with a high prevalence of um, of other issues that are not related to clinical outcomes or so social determinants of health? Um, what do you see working, and, and how the the outside clinics been able to to work with that?
4: Sure, and uh, thank you for that question. And also, I think building on uh, what you mentioned about um, the Asian uh, population as well, I want to pull that in a bit. So as we've been looking at um, our offsite clinics, it really is about meeting communities where they are. So our clinics are often in some of the most vulnerable areas and some of the uh, most hesitant populations. And so individuals, in, individuals who come to our clinics, this may be the first interaction they've had sort of with a health this care system um, in quite some time. And what we've done is, in addition to looking at where our footprint is and looking at working with our partners, we often will also talk to the local departments of health and say, where are you seeing the greatest need? Um, and that helps drive some of our location of our off-site clinics. And those have been in Black communities, Hispanic communities, but also Asian American communities. So thank you for lifting that up. And the data shows that the vaccination rates are low. There, there is hesitancy, and there are a number of other barriers. And so, going um, into all of those communities with our offsite um, clinics, and so we have done those in partnerships with, as I mentioned, um, local churches, community centers, elected officials in uh, underserved areas, and we often have done those even simultaneously across various cities. And so, in early March, we were in Atlanta, we were in a Mason's Lodge in Baltimore and we were able to administer over 9,000 vaccines, Um, but what that looks like is someone reaching out um, to individuals saying, we're having a clinic, Uh, would you like to be signed up. It's an opportunity for a conversation. It's um, an opportunity for them. Often people come together with another family member. They're going somewhere that is familiar to them because it's local in the community. And so it starts to kind of pull down a number of layers of barriers that we see and makes it more comfortable and helps to build some of that trust around um, coming to get the vaccine. And so it's been a really good way of administering. We're often there two days. um, So we register people and then sometimes someone has heard about it um, that first day and then comes the next day. Maybe that's someone who would not not have done that if it were not locally based um, in, again, one of those trust areas. And we've done it in partnership as well with various organizations. So you've heard about it from another organization in addition to Walgreens. Um, another trusted partner. And we've done the same um, in Atlanta and, and, um, excuse me, El Paso, Houston, and a host of others. Houston was in an area that is called the International Triangle. So it actually did bring various um, sort of racial and ethnic backgrounds um, to receive the vaccine in the local site that we um, were working with.
0: You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA recovery plan for America's physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild.
4: And so those and we're also testing out mobile clinics and so we're going to be having um, some mobile trailers that are able to sort of be moved throughout communities so again utilizing uh, many tools and doing it in concert with partners partnership is so incredibly um, key to this this weekend we'll be partnering with uh, uh, congresswoman Joyce Beatty chair of the congressional black caucus on a clinic in Columbus and with a host of other partners. So really putting all the effort and the engines driving towards this to reach um, these populations. And then you asked about um, different, um, sort of comorbidities, uh, and, reaching those communities. You know, that's something that we saw even during the flu season and why we were so encouraging p- people that, Hey, this is a twin actually, because if you already have any respiratory issues and then you have the flu and then you have COVID, and so really trying to reach and, and touch, um, those populations as well.
2: Aletha, do you see any special considerations in rural environments?
4: Definitely. And it's interesting because some of the same tactics and we're learning, and this is what we've always said, and we'll go through different phases of this as we are reaching different populations, but some of the tactics can actually be expanded on and utilized. So if you look at a rural community, again, how do we bring that um, closer to you and so whether that is and that may still be church that's some place that people go but it may be employer on site as well if there's a local plant there that employs m- most of the people in that area that's a great opportunity to work with that employer to get people vaccinated maybe it's a local farm bureau so again i think a lot of the tactics can be adjusted for rural communities and other hard to reach communities and we are definitely looking at doing that
2: well, there's no shortage of your stores around. You know, I, I must say, it, it takes me a while to get to a space where I don't see a Walgreens in the, in the middle of the block. So you you all are definitely um, literally showing up, and I appreciate you you harping on the the the, the point of of um, of partnerships. You know, and I think Michael, this 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 especially plays into some of the things that you all are doing over at at Howard University. You know. For you all, what's been the specific role of of partnerships in in terms of playing up the the vaccination rates, education and information uh, efforts, trust building, all of that?
3: And and I'll build on on two threads and and two things that have just been discussed, the clinical trial piece uh, that Meg touched on, and then some of the work that Althea and and Walgreens uh, has been undertaken during the pandemic. Uh, We, Howard, is obviously a a trusted voice uh, within communities of color. We have historically worked very closely with underrepresented communities. Uh, So we we have, have an infrastructure and established relationships Uh, in this environment. And one of the areas where we really amplified uh, this engagement is we developed a community advisory board uh, that is representative of communities of color. Uh, And those individuals are broadly dispersed throughout the DMV to help inform what partnerships actually make sense. uh, What communities should be spoken to in a language that resonates. What are some of these barriers and challenges impacting their network, their constituencies, their residents? So we leveraged this community advisory board to help inform some of the strategies that we would undertake from a testing and a vaccine administration perspective. Uh, But it really also manifests itself when we participated in the Novavax phase three clinical trials. So as Meg talked about, there's a lot of innovation in thinking through uh, what clinical trial uh, infrastructure and deployment look like. And we really leverage that community advisory board to help us come up with some strategies and tactics to be able to entice folks to participate uh, in a clinical trial? And, and what questions should they be asking? What information should they be thinking through? Uh, and then what should you expect if you receive placebo? And then what does crossover and unblinded mean? So we you leverage that infrastructure to really have those discussions from a clinical trial perspective. And then the community advisory board helped inform uh, some partnerships. One of the partnerships that we established uh, last March is with the Washington National Cathedral, and they created an on-site vaccination event. Uh, Dr. Fauci was present, uh, NIH, CDC, HHS, and others, to vaccinate clergy on camera to really demonstrate that it was safe and effective to receive the vaccine. It was a non-denominational event, so I think that was very powerful because you had faith leaders across denominations talking about the importance of being vaccinated. We also have been partnering. we've been thinking about different partnerships and we've talked about different uh, ethnic groups. One of the areas where we are currently in discussions is with the Indian Health Service. Uh, That is also a population that has been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And there is a significant presence around these urban centers and access for vaccine within this community and populations uh, sometimes has been challenging. So we're looking at how we partner with Indian Health Service to create more access for vaccines, not for a one-day event, but for continuity in terms of how they can access their vaccines another population that is often overlooked in the district of columbia is embassy staff and their families so those folks have been kind of left out uh, in the process in terms of being able to access vaccine. So we've been having conversations with them. And then we've also been looking at how do we deepen that engagement with our medically underserved communities in Ward 7 and Ward 8 to figure out how we leverage some of the current initiatives on the ground. Maybe that's a payer initiative around chronic disease management and targeting diabetics, uh, cancer patients, sickle cell disease patients and others to really have some targeted outreach to to these individuals and and, and populations. Uh, And then also looking at our younger demographic, uh, which we all know uh, is very challenging uh, at this point. Uh, And some of our influencers and thought leaders that have worked in our older demographics do not necessarily resonate with our younger demographics. So we're looking at, in in our area, we're looking at different artists, young artists um, that can help develop. Uh, a social media campaign to engage um, our young uh, individuals. We're also looking at sports and entertainment figures that can help engage some of these young figures. And then also thinking through, can we create a young ambassadors program? Uh, And that might be engagement with some of the local youth organizations to look at ambassadors that can engage uh, with their particular peers to encourage them to receive the vaccine. So we're trying to build on some existing uh, partnerships that we have and then looking at new opportunities to engage uh, some of these cohorts and segments of the population that haven't necessarily uh, been vaccinated at this point.
2: I really like that one of one of the uh, audience members literally brought that point up about um, younger adults, the 18 to 29 movable middle. And it sounds like um, some of the things that you all are doing are, are working to really address that not so much the, the no, I won't get vaccinated, but the ones who are potentially on the uh, on the fence. Um, and I, I think Alicia mentioned uh, use of influencers as well. So, so that certainly um, seems to have its, its own uh, fruits. What about Michael, any work that you all are doing with the homebound or, or those who, who are caregivers or anything like that? Are you, are, are you all looking into any of that
3: we are we're we're working with a number of community of color uh, providers um, that have that operate either low-income housing buildings or individuals that have operate assisted living or senior buildings to establish vaccine clinics on site Uh, so we've been working with some partners to identify those buildings that still have a number of homebound individuals that have not been vaccinated So going mobile, I know Athea mentioned going mobile. Uh, One of the areas that we're thinking about is deploying a mobile unit to those buildings if they do not have ample space to accommodate an on-site vaccine clinic to be able to vaccinate those individuals unit by unit. Uh, And then we also have a relationship with DC Housing Authority, uh, where we're looking at uh, public housing uh, and low income housing, deploying a mobile unit or establishing a site on premise to be able to provide access to the vaccines but we're trying at this point to move beyond just administering vaccines we're trying to administer vaccines but we also are trying to have people connected to care uh, so that was one of the challenges that we have seen throughout the pandemic is that there is a substantial amount of the population that is not connected to their primary care provider so when the pack the pandemic uh accelerated folks had nowhere to go in terms of asking questions whether they should be tested, whether they were a candidate for the vaccine. So we're also looking at how can we connect folks to care. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be Howard, we just want them to be connected uh, to care so that they can have a, an engaging relationship with a healthcare provider that moves beyond uh, the pandemic.
2: I'm really glad to hear that. Um you know and, and so I'm I'm hoping that amongst um, the panel here, and, and certainly amongst the audience, that you all have been well, um, and your families have been well uh, during this long wintering season, right? But but there are many of us who have had friends or family who have had COVID. Some have have succumbed to um, long-term uh, sickness, and and others have have passed on and have transitioned and, and died from from COVID-related complications, right? And so we are really mindful. Um, of them, we we hold their spirits in our head and our hearts. Um, I, I want to talk to you, Meg, then about those who have been touched directly by COVID and have survived. Um, you know, when it comes to the vaccine, should they get the vaccine? And um, I, I, those who are either in active recovery or those who have recovered over some time, um, and if so, you know, how long after you know having uh,
1: had had a COVID nineteen should that person uh, wait to receive the vaccine? There are recommendations on the CDC website about that. And their general guidance is is that you can receive the COVID vaccine, any of the vaccines, as soon as you're out of quarantine for your COVID-19. With the caveat, however, and this was early when vaccine supplies were scarce, that you could wait 90 days and then receive your COVID vaccine after having COVID, again, while vaccine supplies were scarce, but they're not scarce now necessarily, or they soon won't be. And so the recommendation from the CDC is as soon as you're out of your quarantine, you may have your vaccine. And I think that's very important information to keep in mind. That initial 90 days, came about from early work that was done with COVID that took a look at the presence of antibodies in individual systems after they had COVID. So that's where the 90 days come into play. It could be that you're that you're naturally immune for a longer period of time, but we don't know that yet. So that's the current recommendation. And yes, we do suggest that people be vaccinated even though they've had COVID. I had COVID, a number of my children had COVID and, and we've all since been vaccinated. Because I firmly believe that's very important.
2: Thank you for that, Meg. You know, there's, there's so much to learn from from anecdotes, and and, and also so much to learn from um, from what the what the jargony information offers us. You know, um, and there's a lot to learn from best practices. And so I'm wondering, you know, as you're going about your work, and and Alethea's going about hers, and Michael his. Um, Alethea, I'm wondering if you can, you know let us know a bit about any lessons um, that you've gleaned in your work with, you know, moving the equity conversation forward, with moving the,
4: dis- the health disparity conversation forward, um, particularly in communities of color around COVID. Sure. So there have been a lot of learnings this year. And as we like to say, all of the work that we're doing and while it's focused on COVID and the vaccine at this moment, it really is to be pulled through as we continue to work on health equity as a whole and really taking those lessons and moving forward. So a couple of lessons, you know personal touch, trusted people in people's lives and community are crucial. And so we've highlighted some of the partnerships. We've also highlighted utilizing our pharmacy workforce, our healthcare workforce to continue to to serve we think partnerships, those are not going away. And definitely some of the new and innovative ways of doing partnerships. And so while we've worked with some traditional organizations, we've also done some, uh, you know, different partnerships, whether that's working with the NBA, um, as we're currently doing around the vaccine, whether that's working with additional online organizations or influencers. And those don't just, again, have to be around vaccines. Honestly, it could be around around medication adherence, disease, chronic disease, state management, and others, and so continuing to touch people where they are in order to drive adherence, in order to drive wellness, in order to address some of the um, health equities, even with respect to, to access, continuing to use the influencers, and some of the high touch, we've done a great job, I think, because the pandemic has driven everyone to really doing high touch interactions, but continuing to do those for the people who are most vulnerable. Um, prior to the pandemic, we launched um, some health equity work and it was an advanced care initiative where our pharmacy teams really ramped up our engagement with patients who had chronic conditions. And it was sort of a intervention, so to speak. And the goal was to drive adherence to medication regimens, which were critical to improving um, health. And we tested its effectiveness with uh, patients who were living with diabetes um, in a particular neighborhood in Chicago. And the result of it was a 77% improvement in two weeks on their refills. And that was a result of high touch outreach efforts. Um, But what we know is that that is critical um, to keeping them healthy, um, being adherent with that. And so we take those lessons learned and say, how do we move forward and how do we incorporate this into the care we're driving every day? And so again, lots of lessons learned on high touch, outreach on unusual partnerships, unusual, some unusual, or just different um, in order to reach different categories of patients. and then continuing to drive sort of the voices of trusted um, healthcare workers and trusted community partners.
2: Um, I love, love, love the phrase "high touch," especially because we are, as a nation, moving into such high tech related medicine and uh, and such like that. And and sometimes it really is just the the personal, you know, coming close, knocking on doors, spending time, listening being um, being of, of service in the moment, which it's timely. Um, it's in, and that tends to be one of our most stretched of resources time is, but um, that high touch, low tech uh, innovation, particularly during the emergency uh, situations is certainly working. Um, so kudos to all three of you for the work that you all are doing and, and your teams are doing and the leadership roles that you're playing. Um, in the last three minutes that we have, I'd like to just um, hear from each of you What are, you know, just some closing words, final words and uh, takeaways that you would want for the audience uh, to to know? Either summarizing what you've already said or offering additional information. And Michael, I'll start with you.
3: A couple of things that that I want folks to, to take away and it's in four areas. Access access is, is still a problem. It's still a challenge, uh, not only in terms of receiving testing as well as vaccines, but in terms of receiving high quality care. So there needs to be significant thought and intentionality around creating more opportunities for access to receive high quality care. Uh, engagement, as Athea talked about, it. I think engagement and in, in what that looks like moving forward uh, needs to be contemplated. I think that there are some lessons learned during the pandemic that we can leverage moving forward, but we also need to think about how we leverage technology, uh, how we look at the virtual health experience. Right? how we look at remote monitoring, how we create more engagement and connectivity. And I think health literacy is a big part of that. So I think there needs to be a doubling down on health and system literacy. And then this piece around empowerment. I think that folks need to feel empowered uh, to make informed healthcare decisions. I think we've made some strides in that area, but I think that there needs to be significant investment. Uh, And then under the, the auspice of health equity. Um, I think that we, we need to think about infrastructure uh, and how we develop more resilient communities in the urban and rural environment. Uh, there's a big infrastructure bill up on the hill that you all are well aware of. How do we look at infrastructure as a means to create more resiliency and capacity uh, in medically underserved communities? And, and I think that's part of that empowerment. So I wanna leave you with, we need to continue to think about access. We need to continue to think about engagement and we need to figure out how we empower folks, particularly communities of color to make informed healthcare decisions uh, and improve healthcare quality overall. Thank you, Michael. Meg, over to you.
1: Yes, and again, I want to offer my thanks for being able to be a part of this panel with such wonderful colleagues. As both a Pfizer medical representative as well as a physician, there are a couple of points that I would like to finish with. One of the things that the CDC asked us to to consider is to move from the words vaccine hesitancy to confidence, to move from the negative to the positive so that we could help people feel more confident with vaccines. We know that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected communities of color And I think that we need to recognize that COVID-19 is not a trivial disease and does not appear to be going away. One of the most important things we can do is vaccinate. And the reason why I say that is we are all very familiar with the viral variants. Viruses do vary. They do mutate. And that is one of the issues. The fastest way we can get this virus to stop mutating is by all of us being vaccinated because viruses mutate by moving from person to person. So that would be the final comment that I would think about that, that we know we may be in this for the long run. And what we want to do as best we can is protect not only ourselves, but protect our communities because vaccine is the one element of medicine where you're not just protecting yourself, it's also altruistic and you're trying to help others as well. Thank you, Meg. Alicia, closing words.
4: Sure. Uh, I'm gonna make two points. One being access, and I do think that is critically important. You know, we've been talking for years about trying to provide additional or broader access to even pharmacist services. Pharmacists are they're local, they're embedded in community. And that's one of the things we've seen during the pandemic, right? Community-based care and that people were pretty much locked into their community. So to the extent that you could localize care was really going to be one of your best chances for reaching people. And so continuing to look at how we are utilizing our entire healthcare workforce, um, including pharmacists. And I would also say, um, and to piggyback on the infrastructure piece, healthcare infrastructure. So what the pandemic also showed us is some of what we've known for a while is that we are lacking in health care infrastructure, and there are holes in our care delivery teams, and just not enough healthcare care providers. And so with us looking at how do we, how do we build upon um, our healthcare infrastructure, how do we keep some of the expansions in place that we have um, implemented during the pandemic in order to make sure we don't uh, sort of regress um, while in the times that we are outside of a pandemic, because then it takes us a longer time to shore up. But also, you probably have more people who haven't been treated and haven't cared for and then who are vulnerable because we didn't have enough uh, infrastructure around our healthcare workforce and so really looking back to have that be a key part of any infrastructure um, package uh, that we're considering
2: well i mean i couldn't i I couldn't be more grateful for the uh, sage words that each of you has offered us today and and also just your, your overall service and your humility and, and also just how firm you are in making sure that we are vaccine confident, we're asking the critical questions, we're engaging each other, uh, meeting each other where we are and engaging in, in high touch efforts and, and moving the advocacy needle forward so that we can have Uh, increased infrastructure. So um, again, my my deep thanks to Dr. Meg Frazier, Senior Medical Director of Vaccines at Pfizer, to Michael Crawford, thank you so very much for joining us. The Associate Dean for Strategy, Outreach uh, Outreach and Innovation at Howard University College of Medicine, and Alethea Jackson, Vice President of of Federal Government Affairs over at Walgreen Company. And and, and I'm Mia Keyes, I'm with the American Medical Association Center for Health Equity.
0: This episode was originally a panel session as part of the 2021 National Minority Quality Forum's Annual Leadership Summit on Health Disparities and Health Brain Trust. That was Mia Keyes, joined by Dr. Meg Frazier and Michael Crawford on vaccine equity among Black Americans. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.